If you're able, would you remain standing and, re- and turn to James chapter 1 for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> We're going to read verses 16 through 21 of James chapter 1. Hmm. James 1.16, this is the word of our Lord. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that uh, you be with your messenger this morning to speak through him to our hearts. For asking in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning we welcome to our pulpit Pastor Steve Brenniger. He's the pastor of the, of the Bible Presbyterian Church in Cape Canaveral, Florida, Grace Bible Presbyterian Church. He is the stated clerk of our synod, which means he's the one that makes our denomination work. Uh, in, in the background, as far as uh, everything goes. He's also the chairman of the board of our seminary, and uh, one of the closest friends I have in this world. So I'm very excited to have him preach to us this morning. Good morning. It is good to be with you. I do bring grading, greetings, greetings, greetings from the church in Cape Canaveral. Uh, we just uh, hosted Senate, and that was a, a glorious time uh, for us. Uh, you mentioned being stated clerk. It has the greatest job security in the world because nobody wants to do it, <laughs> even when I beg. But um, as, you, uh, as we look at the Word of God this morning, turn open to James chapter 1 if you've closed it. Our main focus is going to be on verse 19. And by way of introduction, I came across a story In a book about thinking, the book is called Thinking Fast and Slow, and it's about how we have two different parts of uh, our brains we engage for decision-making. We have the fast that we make snap decisions, like how you walk, you don't think about it, you just do it. And then you have the slow part, which you make bigger decisions. And the authors argue in the book that it's possible to so ingrain, so train yourself when you become a student of something that decisions that should be very complex can become second nature. By example, they tell the story of a uh, um, fire captain who's, I don't know what the right term is, his team or brigade or whatever. The firefighters were fighting a fire in a kitchen. And all of a sudden, he yelled for everyone to get out immediately. They just stop what they're doing, and they get out. And within seconds of them leaving the building, the floor collapsed. When asked later about why did he order everybody out, he said it was too quiet in there. That his experience as a fire captain and firefighting over the years had trained him that a fire should 
sound a certain way, and when it didn't sound right, he knew there was danger. And it turns out there was the fire wasn't actually in the kitchen. It was only manifesting there. It was actually in the basement below. And that order to get out saved the lives of, of the crew. That through training, through study, through practice, it had become so ingrained in him how to do firefighting and what it should be like and how it should go that he knew instinctively when something was wrong. They say that such expertise in any field, such mastery of a field, can take up to 10,000 hours of work and practice and training. And that, uh, if if you think about it, I I sort of like numbers, that's uh, five years of 40 hours a week doing only that, which is the type of commitment, for instance, a, a professional athlete might have to to their trade as, as they're working through that. As we look at verse 19, James is giving us a command, a very important command, the command to listen that needs to become ingrained in who we are and how we think and, and how we uh, handle our lives. Verse 19 serves as, as almost a Proverbs and as a bit of transition in James chapter 1. It's been said that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament, and verse 19 is a, is a good example of that, where much like the Proverbs, it, it has a certain shape to it. It's easy to remember. In fact, if you don't have it memorized now, by the end of the sermon, you probably will have it memorized, and you, should, uh, you can quiz each other on the way home. Uh, I often quiz my children and uh, Sophie. Uh, my, how old is Sophie? Seven? Eight? I don't know. Uh, she's an age. And uh, she always wants donuts when, whenever she gets anything right. But, you know, James gives us this command. It's, it's one command. It's the command to calmly listen, but he issues it in three really rapid-fire statements. When he says, be quick to hear, or excuse me, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, you notice that there's no connecting, verb, uh, connecting words there. There's not and. It's just these three commands all together. And the reason he does that is because if you are going to listen, you have to do all three. You can't do one and not the other ones. That it, it really is a whole package that goes together. And in that way, like the Proverbs, it shows us that it's, it's excellent advice for life. It's excellent advice for communication. That if there's going to be an exchange of ideas, if you're going to be able to understand what somebody says, you need to do all three of these things. So let's look at it just a a little bit closer, dig a little bit deeper there. You notice first in verse 19, he says that we need to be swift to hear or to be quick to hear or to be quick to engage the effort to listen. We have to remember that listening is not a passive activity. Yes, it's true. We're not speaking. It's, uh, in a sense, you're receiving something. But to do that well, you have to be be active. You have to be listening. I found that uh, note-taking is a very helpful practice when I'm listening to someone. After church, if somebody comes out and tells me something, I usually pull out my phone uh, to, to uh, put myself a reminder in there. Uh, I have a, a sort of older congregation in Cape Canaveral, and sometimes I have to show them that I'm not actually texting somebody else, but I'm trying to listen to them. I uh, carried a little notepad for a while, then I lost that, and 
so the phone is always with me, and it's, it's helpful, and it, it helps us re, uh, remember and focus in what is happening. Listening also, as you're quick to listen, also has a bit of a, a positional aspect to it. If somebody's talking to you across the room, and you really want to know what they're saying, what's the very natural inclination is to move towards them, to move and get yourself in a position so that you can hear so we have to be quick to, to engage that. And as we're doing that, James tells us to be slow to speak. And there are, are two really important aspects of being slow to speak. First of all, if you start talking, what happens? They will stop talking, hopefully. Unless it's one of those situations where both people start talking at the same time, and then it's uh, a lot of confusion going on. But you end up breaking their chain of thought. Uh, oddly enough, this happened to me recently in two different sermons where visitors to the church came in. I started preaching. I started with an illustration like I did this morning. And they, they get up and leave because they wanted to hear about Jesus, not about firefighters. In that particular case, it was an illustration about the beach, uh, which they got very offended at and got up and left. And they didn't listen for the whole thing. They, they stopped my talking, if you will, and didn't listen to everything that was said. And of course, we live in a culture that's being trained for sound bites. Uh, Twitter, 140 characters or less, uh, one sentence, uh, snippets. Uh, when you uh, read anything about politics 100 years ago or more, debates usually lasted for multiple hours. Candidate one would get an hour to speak. Candidate two would get 45 minutes to respond and, and so on. And, and they would do that and take turns. Uh, I don't know if you uh, watch any political debates today, but there's not an hour of uninterrupted talk. There's not 30 seconds of uninterrupted talk in these debates, and there's not a clear exchange of ideas. That if we start talking, we break that person's chain of thought. The other aspect to remaining silent is the need to remember that great point that you just thought of. I've been in many meetings where somebody was interrupted because... One of the other members wanted to interject his great idea before he forgot it and had to get it out there. Again, pen and paper can be very helpful for us. Write down the, the point that you want to make, the great idea that you've come up with, and then you reference it and can come back to it. In order to know what that person is saying, we have to engage in the listening process, and then we have to remain silent so that we can hear what they're saying. And certainly, you're probably thinking in your mind, well, yeah, I was talking to somebody, though, and he'd been going on for 15 minutes. Do I still have to stay silent? You need wisdom. There's times where cutting somebody off might be extremely helpful. The last thing that James tells us in verse 19 about listening is that we have to be slow to anger, slow to wrath, slow to anger. Now, I just want you to picture a scene of great communication. There's two people in uh, the store. They have between them the last hot Christmas toy. When I was a little kid, when I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, the hot toy was a Batman action figure. And you can imagine the last one in the store on December 23rd or 24th or maybe even 25th. And the, the parents are discussing it as they're, the, the opposing parents, as they're red in the face, yelling at the top of their lungs. And it seems like they're having a sensible, reasonable conversation in that scene as they're yelling at each other, right? That's how it happens. That's a joke. I, nobody got it, but that's okay. But uh, 
Thanks for the pity laugh. But, you know, it's not a scene of good communication. We know that. We can identify that from across the room. We don't even need to see or hear, excuse me, we don't need to hear what they're saying. We know that when anger enters in, the ability to reason is gone, and people are probably shouting the same exact thing over and over again with greater and greater intensity. That they're not going to be able to come to a compromise. They're not going to be able to work it out. They're not going to negotiate to cut the Batman figure in half and let each kid have half of it. They're not going to figure any of that out because anger has entered in. That if we're going to have good communication, we have to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, this is obvious, and it, it, it is almost so obvious, like many of the Proverbs, you wonder why it's stated. Well, in the book of James, this verse is about much more than the discussion that we might have with our neighbors or the debates that might unfold in a meeting of the church or, or anything like that. This is about listening to the Word of God. Some commentators are completely divided, kind of in two camps on this. But I'm taking the position that as you read from instance verse 16 through verse uh, 21, and even into to the, the next section of this book, he's talking about not just communicating with one another, but how we receive the word of God. If you look at verse 18 for just a moment, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That by the word of God, by the Bible, by the... Uh, The means of grace that is the scriptures he's given to us, he has brought us forth. Uh, Literally, that that means to to give birth. Earlier, there'd been a different birth talked about, and that's the birth of desire into sin, into death. And here he says that we should not be deceived, that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. And that good gift, that perfect gift, primarily is the word of God, is our salvation. And it is by the word of truth that he's brought us forth. Now you notice in verse 18, it continues on that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That as Peter says, we're a people that have been saved to be zealous for good works. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we've been saved by faith and that's a gift of God. Been saved by grace through faith, that is a gift of God. And then he has good works for us to do. That the Christian life is something that is active. James is about to say, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers. Persevere. Do not forget. And put into practice the grand truth of the scriptures. Live out our Christian life and the principles of the word of God. If we're to do that, if we're to be that first fruits of his creatures, if we're to glorify him in all that we do, with our words and with our deeds and with our lives, We must receive the word of God. And in that way, verse 19 is about hearing the word of God. It's about receiving God's word. So I want to apply each of the statements that James makes to the particular situation of how we would receive the word of God. And the first one is that we must be quick to hear has two parts to it. And this first one is the the act of what I'm calling position. That we need to position ourselves to hear God's word. So obviously, positioning yourself to hear God's word, that's coming to church. That's engaging 
in the, the time of worship and the preaching of the word and in the, the prayers and in the hymns, but it's also what you do every day. It's the, the, if you will, the formal aspect of having the Bible open every day, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, not just when you're in church, that's very important, but not just then, but also each and every day of the week. But it's also something else. What do we do when, what, what do you do? What comes to mind, put it that way, when you have to make a big decision? You're facing a big decision. And I don't mean something trivial like where to eat lunch, but a big life decision. Where do you go? What do you do? Now, the correct answer that perhaps has come to mind is the Word of God. And there's really two things we should say. You should pray as you're opening your Bible. And you pray, God, help me understand. God, reveal your will to me. Help me understand your word. And then you're opening the Bible. You're studying the Bible. And just to be very clear, uh, I don't mean flipping through a random page, putting your finger on a verse, reading the verse, and saying, oh, that's not what I mean. But I mean analyzing your problem. What does the Bible say about this thing if it's a, a decision about a job? What does the Bible say about work? What does the Bible say about what things I should be looking for in a job? And and those things, if it's a a difficulty with a fellow Christian, you, you have a conflict that you have to handle, that you have to manage. What does the Bible say about the right way to handle that conflict? To summarize, the Bible says go to that person. Matthew 18, Galatians, beginning of chapter 6. So many times, the response I get from Christians when when such a situation happens is not, okay, I'll go do that because the Bible says to, but instead is, wait a second, I don't see how that do any good. It needs to make sense to me before I do it. Now, we need to understand what the Bible says, but then when we do that, when we understand that, we need to follow it. We need to obey it. Not long ago, just a little over a month ago, I was going through some frustrating situation. Uh, I was discouraged. And I thought to myself, well, what, what should I do about this? And we have a little counseling book, and it has categorized verses based upon topics. And so I looked up the topic, and the one that applied was dis- depression and discouragement. And to be clear, I was not depressed, but I was, I was discouraged. I was frustrated. I was disappointed in certain things. And so it gave me 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 as a passage to look to. So I pulled up that passage and I started studying it and memorizing it. And one of the things that passage tells us is that what we're facing in this life is a light, momentary affliction. Light, momentary affliction. That the thing that I was going through The discouragement that I faced was a light, momentary affliction. And that's been a real encouragement. By the way, it's only light and momentary because everything seems like really long when we're going through it in the light of the eternal weight of glory that God is working in us. That when what we're facing now, when we compare it to what is to come for us as the people of God, having believed Uh, in the finished work of Christ, having been saved by His death, burial, and resurrection, this life cannot compare to what is to come. And having seen that, having heard that, I I was encouraged. 
had to wrestle with it for several days, had to think about it. And that we have to be, be active in receiving that. Asking questions like, what does this mean? And how does it apply to my situation? You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 was written by the Apostle Paul. You might think to yourself, well, he says a light momentary affliction, but you don't understand what I'm going through is far worse than anything Paul's gone through. And I would encourage you to study the book of Acts and see all the things that Paul went through because it's probably not likely that you have suffered as much as the Apostle Paul. And if you're curious the type of things I'm talking about, I'm talking about being stoned to the point where they thought he was dead and then being taken up and recovering. And by the way, Paul went back into that city to minister to the people, uh, the Christians there, after being stoned. That we look at what Paul says there, he went through some affliction that we would not have described as light or momentary. But in comparison to glory, that's exactly what it was. So as we think about moving towards the source of the Bible, that's a diligent attendance at church. That's consistent Bible reading, which are both extremely important. That we would move to the source, that we would look to the Word of God. The second thing is that we need to be also under the quick-to-hear heading is that the Bible is our rule of faith and practice. So the, the second act of hearing is focus. Whenever I go to a restaurant with my wife, I have to be careful which side of the table I sit on because I cannot sit on the side that faces the TV with sports on it. It doesn't matter what sport is up there. The most boring sport in the world could be up there. And I, I'm transfixed by having to stare at it and see. It's like the moving images. are. Uh, it's like a moth to light. So I have to try and figure out where I can sit so that I can focus and not be distracted. When we think about the Word of God, we have to remember that the Bible is not ultimately a product of human hands that has its strong points and its weak points. One of the things I've been doing this week is working on some, some schoolwork in an advanced, for an advanced degree I'm taking. And one of the things I had to do was read a dissertation written by a certain individual about the second professor at Princeton, Samuel Miller. I'm a big Samuel Miller uh, fan, really in sort of what I'm working on right now. But in this book, there's some really, in this dissertation, it's, there's some really good points he makes about history, about the flow of politics and the changing times in America and uh, Miller's change uh, over the office of ruling elder. But throughout the whole thing, he's driven by a certain thesis that he believes the Bible is just the product of human hands. So if they were trying to reform according to the scriptures, that's really not what's going on. That's really not what's authoritative. And in that way, it's been frustrating and disappointing and uh, not enjoyable to read. He has some good points, but he has some bad points. Any book you pick up, no matter who read it, no matter how orthodox and reformed and faithful they are, they're going to have points in it that are really strong points, that are really good, and, and weak points. That's not true with the Word of God. That's not true with the Bible. We don't look at certain passages of the Bible and say, well, you know, James chapter 1 is really good, but he really gets off the rails in chapter 2. No, it's all inspired by God, and it's all authoritative for us. And we have to remember that the Bible communicates God's truth to us. It is God's truth. It is God's word. It is true 
that some parts of it are more difficult to understand than other parts. And we can feel confident in that because Peter himself said so of Paul in 2 Peter 3.15, that brother Paul says some things that were very difficult to understand. And we have access to many, many terrific resources and commentaries that help us understand the Word of God. And when I say focus on the Word of God, I'm not saying ignore all of that wonderful things out there, commentaries that have been written, uh, confessions and creeds that have helped us uh, help the church sort of articulate the truth of God's Word. Those things are important, but those are not the only things that we look to. And we try those things, we test those things according to the Word of God. Remember, Luke in, in the book of Acts says that the Bereans were more noble because they criticized, if you will, Paul's preaching with the Word of God. Not criticized in the way we might use the word so negatively, but they searched the Scriptures. Is he saying what he's saying? Is it true? We must not listen to those who seek to undermine the authority of the Word of God or to, to those who are denying the Word of God. There are certain things when people say them to me, I get, I get very skeptical. For instance, when anybody says they're following the science these days, I get very concerned because everybody, anyways. One of the things is when a young man particularly, but not just young men, other people have done this too, when they start telling me about a decision that they've made because the guys at work told them it was a good idea. And I often have to say, now wait a second. Who are those guys at work? What church do they go to? You know, we, we spend time with people at work. They can have an influence over us. Hopefully we're having an influence over them. In, in the cases that I'm thinking of, those, those people weren't Christians. Those, those coworkers weren't Christians. And we're giving them really bad advice. We don't want to just take what, what, what the Bible says and add it to what the world says as if it's on the same level, because it's not. The Word of God is just that, God's Word. By faith, we receive it as the authority of God. And so as we're thinking about a decision or, or situation, where are we going to look for instruction? It must be primarily from the Word of God. Now, that doesn't have some sort of thought, you know, today there's that, you know, just me and my Bible off in a closet. We all live in community you have a church, you have pastors and elders and other mature Christians in the church that you should be looking to because they've drunk deeply from the well of God's word, have learned things, have experienced things, have applied God's word and seen it applied well, seen it applied poorly. And so those wise counselors are, are vitally important in our lives that we would hear the word of God. So that's being quick to hear. Listening to the word, putting ourselves in position to hear the word, focusing on the word. The next one is that we must be slow to speak. Slow to speak. I'm going to turn over for, for just a moment to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that passage I referenced uh, just a moment ago. And I want to read the whole thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I said, read the whole thing. I want to read three verses. Verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not lose hearts, even though the outward, man, the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now as I read that, let's apply that to a situation, if your first response is to say, yeah, but, yeah, but... You don't know how bad I have it. You don't know how long the affliction has been going on. If you were to listen to this and you, you, you stop and you say, no, this can't possibly apply to me because the things that I see, I really need. We live in a very consumer-driven society. The images we see every day are about how much better our lives would be if we just chewed the right brand of gum. And, and everything would be perfect. Everything would be fine. Now, I, I always use gum because most people aren't super attached to their gum as they are something else. But, you know, what, what other things that we, we have this pull? And for some people, it might be shoes or clothing. I just need this latest fashion trend. I have no sense of fashion, so I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But this is what I need in order to be happy. Or maybe I need the job, or I need the promotion, or I need to get uh, the good grade, or, or whatever it is. And we say, these things that I see, this is what I need to be happy. This is what's really important. A few years ago, uh, it's been, let's see, about four or five years ago, there was a, a rather major hurricane that was threatening the city of Cape Canaveral. I don't know if you remember, uh, Pastor Titu actually sent all of you an email. Because at one time, the path of that hurricane was the, the Grace Bible Presbyterian Church. The next point was my house, a little bit more inland. That was the path that this very strong hurricane, I don't remember which even name it was. I went to bed that night. We had, I, my wife and I and the, the family had come to Lakeland. We'd had some other trials that night. My wife, who was pregnant uh, with uh, one of our children, was in the... Of course, she was pregnant with a child, but she was pregnant. I was going to try and name it, but I couldn't remember who it was. Uh, and, and in the hospital, because of some bleeding that day, I'm at my aunt's house uh, just waiting. And every time I woke up, I thought about the church building, and I thought about the people who had stayed behind, and I prayed for them. It was this exercise in trust. There's no, with all our technology, we can't do anything about a hurricane. As much as everything we buy is rated for 150 mile an hour winds, I'm pretty sure it hasn't been tested in actual hurricane conditions. What's going to happen? What would be left? I was thinking of one lady in our church who was so confident that she just stayed in her, her condo. When I talked to her about it, she says, well, if I... If I were taken away by the storm, I'd go to a much better place. And it was this, this thing, does the church survive without a building? Of course it does. Because we don't look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Another example of this that goes with it is what the Bible says about wealth. For instance, in James chapter 2, back in, in, in James, chapter 2 verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has not... Oh, excuse me, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? The things that are seen, riches, are not what is most important. In fact, James tells us that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Is not faith better than wealth? The temptation is, yeah, 
But wouldn't it be better to have faith and wealth together? But what does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible teach us? What does the Bible teach us? For instance, think of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. A dependence upon the Lord is something vital and important for us. And we must be slow to speak as we come to the Word of God. Finally, we must be slow to anger. Now, we all know we're in church. We're, we know that being angry with God would be a bad thing. Processing God's truth requires patience, though. So think about a situation. A situation like the discouragement I, I mentioned earlier. And we might start asking questions. Does the situation I'm facing work an eternal weight of glory? Can God produce good from this mess? Now, as the people of God, our answer, of course, should be yes. And it's okay to ask these questions when we ask them in faith with trust. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. We have to attach verse 29 to that, that we'd be more like Jesus, is the summary of verse 29. Not all things work together for good, that I have a great portfolio for my stocks or stock portfolio, but no, no, all things work together for good, making me more like Jesus. The problem when anger enters in is that those questions quickly move to a sense of, I deserve better. Why are you letting this happen to me, God? I deserve better. I've been faithful. Shouldn't I have an easy life now? And we have to be clear with ourselves what the Bible teaches. Let's be very clear. I do not deserve better. I like to ask the question, what do we deserve from God? And the temptation is to say nothing. But I hope you, tr- you know that that is far too easy For us, what we actually deserve, the Bible tells us, the wages of sin is death. We deserve the eternal curse of God. We deserve the wrath of God for all time. But by grace, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The good gift of the gospel that we have salvation and everlasting life is truly all of grace because we don't deserve it. You think about the things in our lives, the Bible clearly teaches us that God is working in us, that we would be the first fruits of his creation, that we would praise his holy name. I'm not going to suggest that's easy to do. But the first thing that we must do is listen to God's word, understand what it says as we live it out. In verse 20, we're warned of James chapter 1, verse 20. We're warned about our ability. It says, for then, uh, excuse me, so then my beloved brethren, excuse me, that's verse 19, verse 20, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, we have a problem. If we become angry, we're not going to produce the righteousness which God requires. To produce God's righteousness, to produce what what God is, is calling us to and to walk faithfully for Him. We have to seek something outside of ourselves. And we do that by listening to God's Word. Samuel Miller summarized the Reformed faith this way. In short, the sum of our belief in reference to this great economy, being the doctrine of Scripture, may be expressed in one sentence. All that is evil is 
all, excuse me, all that is evil in man is of himself, and to him belongs the blame of it. And all that is good in him is of God, and to him, to God, belongs the praise of it. On our own, we'll be miserable, discouraged, depressed, and on our way to death. But with the Lord, there's hope, there's joy, there's peace, there's everlasting life. As you think about listening to the word, there are two things that we should do. First, we should fill our minds with God's word. I would encourage you to start your day with the word. Now, some people prefer to do a a more in-depth devotion in the evening. Uh, Others are in the morning. Whenever it is, it needs to be a set time because if you just wait until you have leftover time, I guarantee you, you will not have leftover time. So you need to have a time that you do that. But my suggestion here is if it's going to be in the evening, we'll start your morning with a psalm and prayer to think about it, to fill your mind with it, to give careful attention to the word of God. Second, and it's a little bit more difficult, filling your mind with the word of God is something that seems obvious to do. The second thing is to fill your heart with God's word. Now, we live in a culture that says the heart is this uncontrollable thing that wants whatever it wants and we have to do whatever it does and says and whatever feels right, do it. That, of course, is not what the Bible teaches. So how do we fill our heart with something, though? Well, it starts with the mind. It starts with thinking rightly about it and telling our heart, this is the law of God. This is good. This is what we need. This is God's word. And a helpful tool there, Psalm 119, verse 11 that we would store up God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Now, that's often used for memorization, and certainly that's a part of it. But uh, it's, the picture there is, is a, a toolbox, a well-organized toolbox. I have a mechanic uh, down the road from me. His toolbox is labeled with all the tools, and he always can find whatever we need to find uh, when we need to find it because he's, he's organized it. And the idea of storing it up is memorizing it, knowing it, and being able to use it. May we walk with the Lord each and every day. May we fill our minds and our hearts with his word that we might be the first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study it together. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to look to you in all things and to serve you faithfully. Father, may your word be our only rule of faith and practice. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.